here we are again. We're the Truth and Life Today show with Dr. John Newfeld. John, it's great to have you here again. Yeah, it's great to be here. And to be looking at the, the questions that are coming in from our listeners, and they're fantastic questions, and I think things that are really going to grip us today. But let's start right off because there's some good stuff here, and we're going to start off with a real light one, not real. Here, here we go. Is there a time when we should consider leaving our church? Yeah, I mean, that is yes. The answer is yes, there is a time. However, before I think we should launch into that, I, I think it's worthwhile to, to simply talk about the importance of the church. Okay. We find more and more people who are just disconnected from any church and kind of wandering around and not having a place of belonging. And it is important for us to have a place of belonging. I, I love to say that the entire Bible was written to the church. Every single book of the New Testament is written to a church and not individuals. And when they're written to individuals, like 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy is written so that Timothy could take his role as the leader of his church. So if you're not in a church, there's nothing in the New Testament for you. So we wanna say, yeah, you know, the church is really important. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I, need, I felt I needed to say that yeah. because of the world that we live in. Um, I think, you know, it's important also to say something else. The nature of Canada today is that some of us live in rural communities where there is maybe one or two churches in town. Okay. Uh, so I don't think that's much of an option anyway. And then of course the question is in large urban centers where the majority of us Canadians now live, uh, we're now living in a place where there are multiple options. And that's when church switching becomes such a big issue. But even having said that, I do think that there are times when I think not only are we permitted for leaving our church, but I think we're almost commanded to do so. I mean, one of the most obvious is false teaching. Yeah. Uh, if you're in a place where you have no leadership and uh, you have no ability to impact the teaching in that place, you know, my response is run. And so I would say from that, Ben, I would think that there are two places where false teaching happens. First of all, you might be in a church where the statement of faith has some serious difficulties with it. Um, so, you know, for instance, you're in a church that has no clear statement on the Trinity, or you have no clear statement on the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, or you have no clear statement on the authority of Scripture. I mean, those are clear issues. I mean, they're not, you know, minor differences that one denomination might have with another. Those are issues about the center of our faith. If you're in a church like that, you need to run. Get out. Do it now. Uh, if you're in a place where you can give leadership, then be clear about the leadership that you're giving. Tell the people. I've changed my mind. I, I, wanted to, I want to change our statement of faith. So be clear about that. Don't be clandestine. And you might be kicked out for that. But nonetheless, it'd be a worthwhile thing to be kicked out for. So I think that's one of the reasons why uh, Christians should leave a church. I think there are other reasons as well. I mean, I think one of the reasons might be that the kind of leadership that you have is oppressive. And I, I want to be careful here, but if you have the kind of leadership that doesn't care for the sheep, but abuses the sheep. I mean, you get sometimes this top-down, extremely hierarchical style that does not care for the people that they're meant to shepherd. In fact, abuses them and leads the wounded people all over the place. That can't be good to the glory of God. And so I would say that a great many people who leave their church walk out as wounded people. So I think the last thing they need at that point in time is to simply have someone beat them over the head and tell them, you shouldn't have left your church when we actually don't realize the, the difficulty that they've gone through. Yeah. Um, I know we've talked about that, however, so some counsel, I think you've said that, should be required. 
Uh, yeah, I think that there needs to be some personal responsibility, right, to make sure that whether it's uh, because of, uh, of doctrine in your church or whether it's abuse, uh, you have to take some personal responsibility, I would think, in making sure that you understand what is biblically true and that also you provide yourself the benefit of having other people that can speak into the issue to make sure your motivation is right? Yeah, no doubt, absolutely. So I think that you know, if, if somebody in leadership has talked to you about a sin and you find you know, that's not appropriate and then you walk out, I, I don't think that's correct. Yeah. So I think, that's, I, I think there are two more categories. And the one category is all about reaching the lost. And um, I think churches must give themselves to the work of evangelism. And a person's heart is for the gospel and leading people to Christ, but you recognize there's no way that you could ever bring an unbeliever to your fellowship. Hmm. I mean, you might want to at least pray for that. And then a fourth issue I would want to say is in relationship to kids. You know, if you have uh, young people, especially in the teenage years, and you recognize that in the local fellowship, they may fall away, but they may get excited about Christ somewhere else. Uh, you, and I want to say this very tenderly because I recognize, uh, you know, having been a large church pastor, how difficult it is for some smaller churches uh, to carry on a vibrant youth ministry. But I'm going to say that it is possible in a small church to carry on a vibrant youth ministry if you have somebody who loves kids. I mean, kids respond to people who love them and care for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if you have nobody that's caring for you and you're watching your 13, 14, and 15-year-old, you might lose them from the faith. And I would say moms and dads, do everything that you yeah. can yeah. to keep your kids. Yeah. So I want to be a little bit gracious in regards to that. So I've given four categories, but my overall impulse is to say to people, stay where you're at. Stay where you're at, but recognize it might not be possible. Yeah, yeah, and again, going back to personal responsibility, we talk about things, maybe youth ministries or whatever, that may not be functioning the way you would like them to, to function, yeah. uh, but there has to be personal responsibility there. And then we've talked about this before. It's sort of like, okay, if there's an issue, then certainly you need to think about doing something about that issue before you just move on and go somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, the amount of consumerism that goes on. I mean, is it meeting my standards of expectation rather than rolling up my sleeves and to say, where can I serve? Yeah. Whose life can I give myself to? So if all you're ever doing is showing up and just saying, you know, I give this a five out of 10, yeah. rather than I invest myself fully in this church and in the life of this church. I mean, I would say to people, if all you're a consumer, uh, you need to correct your attitude because no church is ever going to be perfect. Yeah. Uh, so you need to invest yourselves and you're going to be imperfect as you invest yourself. But together, we're trying to learn to do the work of God together. Yeah. So the church is something we shouldn't be you know, switching on a regular basis. If switching happens, it ought to be traumatic. Yeah. It ought to be traumatic, but in the end of the day, um, you know, we do it because it would have been worse if we hadn't. Yeah. Uh, but in any other case, we'd say, you know, I'm hanging in here, and I'm going to invest myself in something which Christ loves, and I love too. Can I go back to evangelism for a second? Yeah. Uh, where does that stack up in the list of priorities no. for you? Because I think about, you know, churches that are known for their music. Uh, churches that are known because uh, they're very intellectual, so there's a lot of intellectual depth and stuff like Where does evangelism fit on sort of the priority list of John Newfeld? Yeah, you know, and I want to recognize that, especially in urban settings, one of the differences, I think, in a rural setting and an urban setting is that rural folks tend to think about community, and I think that urban folks 
tend to think about subgroups. So when you talk about some churches tend to be more intellectual, some tend to be more emotional and, you know, you know, we tend in given directions so that if you're in an urban community, you tend to gravitate towards people like yourself. Yeah. Just a difference in living in an urban setting. So if churches in an urban setting are on the more intellectual side, you can reach a whole host of people out there who are like that. You know, depending on exactly where you fit. I, I recognize that. I don't think we have to be overt in stating that. Um, but I think, you know, we tend to, to move in the, those directions. But I think that the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, that it is the task of every local church to reach as many people as they can for Christ. And if that's not a priority, church needs to repent. So do you think the thread of evangelism needs to be part of every aspect of every the Every aspect. Yeah. See, I actually believe see, if, if you're caring for the poor, yeah. that's a good thing. And you need to do that. But to care for the poor and not preach the gospel is not caring for the poor. Yeah. Jesus said he'd come to preach the gospel to the poor. Yeah. See, So no matter what we do, if evangelism is not a part of that, and every once in a while as a pastor, I get someone say, Pastor, when are we ever going to do things just for us? And by that, you know, just for us believers and we can keep all the non-believers out. Yeah. My response to that is never. Yeah. Somebody once said to me, you know, when are, when are you interested in stopping growing, hmm. you know, as a church? And my response is, we can stop growing when every single person in our community confesses faith in Christ until then, yeah. we're never going to stop. So I think that needs to be the heartbeat of every local church. Whatever we do, we're also asking the question, how do we reach out to those who have not yet heard? Yeah. You know, for years and years, I've heard so many churches uh, name themselves community something, right. community something. What does community mean anymore in respect to uh, uh, the urban centers? Because it, it doesn't take very much for someone to, to travel an hour yeah. to go to a church of preference but does that take them outside of their, their, their neighborhood? And does that, does that even matter? Yeah, and, and, and I think neighborhoods are changing significantly. Uh, even in urban settings, uh, in, a, in a past generation, uh, people thought about neighborhoods differently. Um, I remember reading one author on this and said a screen door on a house in the summertime mm -hmm. means that you kept the door open. It told everyone in the neighborhood that your door is open, come on in. But nowadays when we screen calls or when we screen things, a screen means to keep people out. And in an urban setting, people tend to think it an imposition for someone to walk into their home. Yeah. So what we have to do as a church is to go against the grain and create communities where there have been none because the heart of every single child of Adam and Eve, of everyone you know, created in the image of God, is we long for community. I mean, our God is Trinity. He's community. And so we are made for community. And so um, the, the job of the church is to do that. Now, the question you know, how, how far should a person drive? Well, my question is, if you can drive for an hour and still be a part of that community, well, I guess just go ahead and do it. Yeah. yeah. So you've talked a little bit about this or a lot about this, but I, I got to ask you this question because it was asked of us. Yeah. What would you say are the primary qualities of a church that I might look for? Mm -hmm. Yeah. See, there we're talking about the essential nature of the church. And that's a historic discussion. I mean, Luther said the church is where the gospel is truly preached and the sacraments are rightly administered. Now, there are a lot of people that said, well, that's not enough, and they're probably right. So, you know, if we ask what is the nature of the true church, I would say, first of all, there has to be a central place to Scripture. Mm 
I would argue that you look for a church where the Bible is truly preached. I think you look for a church, secondly, where you can exercise your spiritual gifts and use them for, you know, don't be a, you know, just a, a person who takes in. Yeah. I mean, it's been said that the reason the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea is because it only takes in and it never gives out. Yeah. You'll be the Dead Sea if you never give out. So use your gifts somewhere within the context of that local church. I would say also that you ought to look for a church that shepherds and disciples you. Um, so I, I'm looking for friendship, I'm looking for relationship, but I'm looking for it in the context of the word. So Ben, if we're in the same you know, home group together, yeah. I want you to speak into my life out of the word because I desperately need it. And so that kind of fellowship out of the word is essential. So I, I, that list is pretty small, wouldn't you say? Yeah. That's a small yeah. list. But that small list is an essential list. Okay. And after that, I, you know, it's bells and whistles, I guess. Yeah. Good, good. Uh, John, a lot of questions re have uh, revolved around the, the next one sent to us, and it's uh, the relationship, and it's really <laughs> very much separate from what we've been just talking about, but the relationship between uh, historic Israel and current modern-day state of Israel. Yeah, now this has everything in the world to do with what is the relationship between the church and the people of Israel. Because you and I will say, the people of Israel, who are they? They're the chosen people of God, and we're right in saying that. Yeah. Uh, but then who's the church? Well, chosen people of God, so which one is it? Is it both? And then, you know, false teaching sometimes has come in the way in which, you know, false teachers have said, if you are a faithful Jew and don't submit to Jesus, you're still okay. And that hmm. really belies the nature of the cross and the need for every one of us to have Jesus pay the penalty for our sins. So let's be clear about this, that God has but one people. It's the people of Jesus Christ. Those are the people of God. So when we say that Israel is the chosen people of God, what is it that we mean? Well, I, I love for that reason Romans 3 verse 19. And, and maybe we should just read that because Romans 3:19 has something that we pass over sometimes, but it has something to say that I'm gonna argue should not be passed over. So let me read it to you. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth might be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. So the law is speaking to those under the law, that's the Jewish people, in order that the whole world would hear something. Basically that they'd be stopped and be held accountable to God. So Israel's story of failure and her inability to trust God, her love affair with idols, her love affair with, um, with not only idols, but breaking all the Ten Commandments, and then also is, uh, is a love affair with legalism rather than the gospel of grace. I mean, all those things that mark Israel makes the whole world accountable because what we see happened in Israel is actually happening in every single human being, in all the cultures of the world. Israel is no better and no worse than the rest of us, but God has chosen them to declare his gospel to the world. So what happened in them has made the gospel known to the entire world. So I would say, number one, we need to recognize that Israel is chosen to make the gospel known to the world, but Israel is also chosen as this example of what failure in the wrath of God looks like. So that's there. Um, so that's saying something different when we say Israel's chosen for those purposes and maybe more, 
But that doesn't necessarily mean that Israel's saved. So when it comes to contemporary Israel, how should believers respond? Well, I always say when, you know, we've gone, you know, on a Back to the Bible Israel tour, you know, we go on one of those, we say, one of the responses that believers need to have as we're in Israel is that we owe to Israel, to the Jewish people, an undying debt of gratitude. I mean, it's just, look, we wouldn't have a gospel was it not for them. I mean, we owe everything to them. So we say thank you, and we honor Israel highly. I think believers have to do that. But on the other hand, we pray for the salvation of the Jewish people because the state of Israel is not a thing of godliness. It's like every other nation in many ways. They make mistakes. They have wonderful moments of success. But we have a unique relationship as believers. We love Israel. Yeah. Now, I can just tell uh, our listeners or our viewers today would, would, many of them would want to extend that question a little bit and say, so John, what is your perspective of the role of Israel uh, in, in, in future days? Yeah. Well, I do because I'm a premillennialist, so I believe in a literal 1,000-year millennium. And I would argue that there, is still, there are still promises made to Israel that will yet are waiting to be fulfilled okay. and that Christ will do in the millennium. So I still wait for what Paul says in Romans, all Israel will be saved. I believe that there's going to be an ingathering of the people of God during the millennium in which Christ does something wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I probably, that's, that, that's not a bad answer, I think. Um, I know there are more questions a person asks, but yeah. that's maybe the best I can do. Good. Uh, last question for, for today. And it's sort of an intriguing one and probably something that many people think about but maybe not talk about too much. Uh, When we go back to the book of Genesis, uh, we're looking at Adam and Eve and their special relationship with God and the the Garden of Eden and all this. But the question is this, why does it appear that Eve was so ready to believe the serpent's lies? Yeah, and she is ready. And I think the reason for that, twofold, one, In the world in which Eve lived, she had never heard a contradiction in her life. It's almost unbelievable for us. We hear contradictions in different points of view almost every single day. It's hard to even get out the door without at least having heard two or three of them, right? So that's the world we live in. But the world she lived in, everything was as it should be, and truth was the staple of life. Okay. So for the first time, she hears someone say something contrary to what she's heard. She's stunned by that. It's like the whole world has collapsed on her head. So we need to at least give her that much grace. But then to say, the reason she believed the lie is because the one that came to her said, not only did God lie to you, but he's trying to deceive you. You could be greater than you are. You could be God yourself. And there's something about her ego that responded to the promise that was given. So she believes the lie because it feeds into how great she might be. And I'm gonna say, that's why we believe the lie too. I mean, because God demands that we humble ourselves, come before the cross, and recognize that we're sinners and we can't save ourselves, only Christ can do that. I mean, that's that's ego-destroying stuff. Is that one of the great tensions then in respect to why or why we would not give our lives to Christ? That is the thing. That is the thing. It almost never has to do with the evidence. The evidence, we can make a great case for the truth of the Bible, the truth of the gospel, the truth of God. I think there's overwhelming evidence for that. I think the problem is, 
it's a moral issue. It, the moral issue is this God demands that I come to an accounting for my sin. And a lot of us are saying, won't do that. Hmm. We're like Eve. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting. We can't separate ourselves too much from who they were and the errors we see uh, within the scripture and ourselves. I mean, uh, we duplicate those same things over and over and over again in our own experience. Yeah, you know, normally we talk about the fall consisting of two things, unbelief and pride. I mean, those things are still the issue, and that's why the way back to God is faith and humility. Yeah. Or we might say, believe and repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. That's humility and that's faith. Yeah. That's the only way back. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, just one added question to that, which I think is an interesting one, uh, but it talks about the animals in respect to the serpent. The serpent uh, was able to speak. Were all the animals in uh, Genesis able to speak or in the Garden of Eden? Yeah. You know, I've had questions like that before, yeah. and my favorite response, Ben, is Deuteronomy 29.29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, and the things revealed belong to us and to our children. Now, I read the same Bible that the, the person that asked that read, and I don't know, you know. Yeah. Uh, I suspect that uh, the world that once was, was in some ways similar to ours, in some ways dissimilar to ours. Um, uh, that Eve seems to not take it as an unusual thing that the serpent would come and speak to her, might be because she simply sees God every evening come into the garden and commune with her and her husband. So the idea of the supernatural invading the present is her experience. Mm -hmm. So she may have looked at this as a supernatural occurrence. A serpent is speaking, it's supernatural, but she will say supernatural things happen daily to me. So I simply grasp that as what it is. And I think that's probably the explanation yeah. for it. So the thing we know for sure is that the serpent spoke and Balaam's donkey spoke. <laughs> Other than that, it's really the mystery of God. Yeah. That's probably true. Yeah. Good stuff, good stuff. Well, thanks so much, John, for the opportunity to speak with you again today. I think uh, people will be delighted uh, to hear their questions answered, and we look forward to doing this again very soon. We hope you're enjoying the new Truth in Life Today show with Dr. John Newfeld. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode each week. But we want you to be involved in the show. To submit your own personal questions to Dr. John, you can email us at info at backtothebible.ca or find us on Facebook by searching Truth in Life Today.